welcome to the New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life of excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at brik.anderson at nllutheran.com. Today we're going to talk about communion, which is one of my favorite subjects. So we've been exploring uh, our services, our worship services. We've been walking through them. Last week uh, we discussed prayer and the Lord's Prayer specifically, and now we're going to continue on through our service, and we get to communion. That's kind of the next major element in our service, and so let's talk about communion. The first question um, that I want to ask uh, Ben, who kind of gives is good at giving us some historical background, some of those things. So when we say communion, what are we talking about? So when we talk about communion, uh, there's a lot of different terms that we actually use for it, depending on the church background that you grew up in or what you've been a part of. You might have referred to it as, as the Eucharist. You might refer to it as Holy Communion or Communion or the Lord's Supper. And any of those are fine, but depending on the denomination that you've been a part of, you probably poured a different meaning into those words. And so if you're from more of a Baptist setting, you probably view it as more of a, a memorial supper, which means it's a time to just remember what Christ has done for you. And because of that take, you don't probably don't take it, it's probably take it occasionally, but uh, not uh, every week for sure. If you grew up in more of a Catholic tradition, which would be kind of the polar opposite of that understanding, you, you would view it as sacramental, meaning that God is actually using those everyday elements to give you something in the supper. And so, like I said, a, a Catholic church would typically call it the Eucharist, and they would take it uh, weekly, if not more. And so every time that they meet, uh, typically you will have that experience, because they're viewing it as kind of a, a spiritual medicine, which is a phrase that Luther also used. And so as Lutherans, we have a, a similar understanding uh, but as a Baptist, you would refer to it as an ordinance, which would be the other side of that spectrum. And since it's just a memorial, it uh, you don't take it consistently. You would take it occasionally to kind of spark life back into you from just kind of that that remembrance of what Christ did. So those are kind of the two bookends that we use. And then people land in the middle and and lean to one side or the other. But really, it all comes down to us trying to understand an infinite God with finite minds. And so as believers who all believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again to prove whom he was, that uh, as we try to grasp his understanding with our, our much smaller, obviously finite human minds, we divide over these things as we read scripture and try to understand exactly what God is doing in this very special time that we call communion. You mentioned um, the word sacrament and the word ordinance. You you mentioned that uh, in our, as Lutherans, our understanding and what would be called the more sacramental understanding, that the that communion acts as a spiritual medicine. And you you use something. Your, your phrase that you use was like uh, that God does something in that time. So can you talk to us about what what is it that God does 
during communion, if that's kind of the, the view that we have, what is it that God is doing during communion? Uh, that's a very large question, <laughs> to be honest. The uh, Simplistically, before we dive really into the scripture to help you understand as a listener why we land where we land as Lutherans, uh, just simplistically, we believe that Christ is offering us his true presence through the, the bread and the wine and using that as a tool to transfer something to us. And uh, we receive from those things benefits. And we see throughout Scripture there's there's a number of benefits, but we talk about forgiveness of sins, Christ's true presence strengthening us, like I said, spiritual medicine. It, it's just like, think of it as the medicine that you receive, there's a, very often there's a little plastic capsule around it, but inside is the true medicine. And so as Lutherans, as we read scripture, what we kind of see is that essentially the bread and the wine are the capsule of Christ's presence and benefits offered to us. And uh, people debate about this. I think specifically growing up in more of a, a Baptist setting in my younger years, I didn't believe that because it was intellectually hard to wrap my mind around it. But uh, what's interesting about it is that if I looked into my childhood, if I backed the story all the way up, I already believe something like that already. Because if we go back to the Garden of Eden, I believed already that there was fruit in the garden, that God told them to that they could eat of any of the fruit except for the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of knowledge and good and evil, the fruit of knowledge and good and evil, and uh, the tree of life was present as well. So they're, they're allowed to eat of any of the fruit except for one, but two of the fruits offered something to them. And, and this is something that in basically every denomination we have bought into without even thinking about it, right? Because it just says this fruit did something. And so right away, we're all starting from that understanding. But what has happened is as we re-engage with that potential later on in the history of the world, specifically in Christ interacts with this bread and wine, we say, well, intellectually, we have decided that doesn't make sense. But we have also already, all of us, have gotten on the bandwagon of saying, early, 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 God has already functioned like this. So that he actually is offering something through this fruit. One is life, and one is knowledge of good and evil. And so we all buy into that. What's interesting is, as history goes on, and pattern goes on, that when we get to this section of communion, where it seems to have similar implications, we divide and say, Ah, uh, that doesn't happen. And it's a little bit intellectually dishonest to say it can't happen because we all would say it already has happened. So then the question is, is it still happening? And I think that's where, when we look into scripture, people divide. But I think the hardest thing for people to grasp is the question of, can this actually happen? Or is this what this is trying to communicate? And I think for most people, the dividing line is, it seems illogical. It seems illogical. And I think what we need to come to grips with is, once again, we are interacting with infinite God who can do whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants. I mean, he's, he, he's on the earth. He's healing people. He's doing all sorts of things that make no sense whatsoever. And we buy into all that. So I think that intellectually, we should have enough space to look at the words that Christ says and say, is he doing something miraculous again? And is he continuing to do something miraculous again? 
as a Lutheran, um, if you're from the Catholic Church, you would agree, you would say yes. And there's other flavors of Christianity that would, would also agree with us. But those are the two major names that most people easily identify with. So anyways, as Lutherans, we say it's sacramental, it's efficacious, God is doing something, because God always functioned that way, and he still continues to function that way. And in a moment, we'll dig into the scripture and kind of try to make sense of where we land, where we land. And this isn't to knock on a person who's Baptist or a different tradition. It's not that. It's just clarifying why we land, where we land, and the beauty that's that's in, that's really held in that truth or that understanding. So I want to, uh, Tim, I'll kick it over to you. I, I want to hear from you... Um, Coming from a different background, which we all didn't come from a Lutheran background, but coming from a different background, what was your experience with communion? And now kind of hearing a brief overview of how uh, Lutheran thought, um, hearing the Lutheran thought of communion and how specifically we here at New Life think about communion, how do those things compare and contrast? How are they similar and how are they different? Yeah, so... I grew up, my dad was a pastor, and we were missionary Baptists, and we only took it once a, once a month. And then I went over to the Methodist, United you know, Methodist Church, and they only took it once a month. So that's all I've ever known was to take it once a month. And it was memorial. Um, but uh, the United Methodists also saw it as um, sacramental. They saw it as something that you you should get something from that Jesus is doing something. Um, but we they still never did it more than once a month. It was still the kind of memorial thing. And for me, it was just like, okay, well, if this is something that God is doing for us, then why aren't we doing it more than once a month? Why are we only doing it once a month? And so it never really made sense to me. And, um, you know, a communion has, it's it's been a long journey trying to figure out exactly what Christ is doing. And I think Ben did a phenomenal job explaining what he does for us and how that helps us to grow in him. And um, for me, I'd, I've always thought that you had to be, quote unquote, right before you take communion. And I would use the verse, uh, the passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians to kind of justify that, where um, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about going and um, like you're hurting your bodies when you take um, the bread and the wine, and uh, but you're living wrong and you're doing it wrong, basically. Um, and so I would use that to say, well, if you're not right with God, if you're not repentant, or not repentant, but if you're um, just not living right, if you're living in sin, then you shouldn't take the sacraments. And the fact of the matter is, we, we're all still struggling with sin. We're all still living in sin. But if we repent of our sin, that's what makes communion, um, that, that, that communion helps with that. And so that's where I, I fell for a long time, was just, um, if you're not right with God, you should not take communion. And you're actually hurting your body if you do take communion. So that's where I fell. But uh, after doing more research and reading into it more, I actually realize that's not necessarily the case. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's how they compare and contrast with me. Growing up, because I, I kind of grew up in, in the Methodist world, but and, and in the Methodist world, the 
wording is the real presence. It's a similar wording to how Lutherans think about it. So um, by doctrine, Methodists are sacramental, that the real presence of Jesus is there. Um, but I grew up in a community that treated it as a memorial. And specifically, it was a memorial where when we did take it, which wasn't, it wasn't even once a month, it was once a quarter or maybe twice a year. I mean, it was very, very rarely. Um, and when it was given, it was a heavy focus on like guilt, like really laid in on the sacrifice of Jesus, and you need to feel the weight of the sacrifice of Jesus. And I think that that's the logical step. If it's if it's only to remember, if it's only a memorial, then then that's what you need to do. And, you, and so then the value of it is how emotional can you get, or how emotional can can the pastor make you? How bad can you? how bad will you feel about this? And then you take it and that's how the remembrance happens. So I don't know if that's like what you guys experienced, but I just remember having a really weird relationship with the communion because I would just, I would try to feel guilty about my sin. And I would try to feel guilty about the things that I've done wrong and feel guilty about what Jesus did for me. Because to me, that was what, that was what, what I was communicated to me was the value of it to remember Jesus' sacrifice and remember his death. Um, I don't know. So I, I grew up with a weird, um, uh, with a weird relationship with it, and then I remember going to college um, and learning more and reading more, and kind of just following that to the to logical conclusion. And I actually, uh, at one point, was talking to my mom. I remember this conversation we had, saying, "I don't even understand why we take it, because we do remember, and if we if we remember, why do we need to?" even do the bread in the cup, we can remember without it, right? So I remember having this conversation and even saying less is better because then it's more meaningful is kind of the, lo- the logic that I use there. But then I came around to what, what we've been talking about now is that uh, communion is not given any power because of what I do. And communion is not given power because of my remembrance or my emotions. Communion is powerful because God says it is. Um, and I, and I think that there's a passage that we'll probably look at, um, in John six. And so that might be the next logical place to go, um, is just to kind of examine the scriptures for a little bit and see what the scriptures say about it. Is that where you wanted to go first? So, uh, Ben, I guess I'm just going to kick it over to you. Why don't you, um, kind of lead us through the John six passage and then we can, we'll have a discussion about it. As we look through scripture, if, if our goal, if our intent is to logically, understand everything there's an unfortunate result of that we either we either minimize truth or we ignore certain sections of scripture because if, if your intent is to try to understand everything about God and have God function like a glorified human then there's a whole bunch of his teachings there's a whole bunch of his truth that you just have to pretend it's not there because it's confusing it's confusing and if you understand it the way that it seems to imply that we should understand it, then it's it's functioning in a way that's far beyond our understanding. And, and so there's this great section in John 6 that, that I believe, if you view this as simply a memorial, as simply a remembrance, as just a, a special time to gather around as believers and think about Christ's sacrifice, then this section of Scripture, you have to just walk over it. You have to ignore it. And so what's going on in John 6 is Christ is teaching. 
And when Christ taught, there was a crowd because he was a phenomenal teacher. He did miracles. And so people showed up in droves. And in that crowd, we've talked about this many, many times, there's people of all spectrums. Some believe, some are on the fence, some didn't believe, and some were actually against Christ, just waiting to hear him misspeak or or say a word or phrase that they could turn on him and do damage to his ministry. So here he is, he's teaching all these people, and they're they're having this, this hard conversation, and all of a sudden he says these words, and it's John 6, verse 47, he says, truly... I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. And then he goes on to talk about what that means. And he says, this bread that comes down from heaven is so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so when he says these words, right? Intellectually, that sounds like cannibalism. And that's exactly what the people heard, right? Where if we eat you, we're going to live forever. I mean, this would be incredibly, uh, it, it would be very crazy for someone to say these words. And you can imagine that the crowd just either went silent or started murmuring or just were trying to figure this out. And so that's exactly what's happening. The crowd is kind of going berserk. And it says this in 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So right away, the people are literally thinking, are we going to be cannibalistic? We know in the Old Testament already, we are not to behave that way. So he's going against the law in their simplistic understanding of it. And they're also trying to figure out what this looks like. I mean, even if we got this benefit where we're going to have eternal life by eating this guy, I mean, one, we're not allowed to do that. And two, what would that even look like? Because there's a whole crowd, if we <laughs> if we really just cooked this dude right here and ate a whole bunch of him, I mean, would there be enough to go around? And so Christ is a great teacher, right? He's a great teacher. And a good teacher, when they say hard things, they clarify what they mean, and he does exactly that. So after they're kind of complaining and having this conversation and trying to figure out his tough teaching, he says this, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread of the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And so Christ already talks about benefits of of eating him. And when the people murmur, he doubles down. He doesn't say, I'm using a metaphor. He literally says, this is what you get when you do this. He says, you're going to have eternal life. You're going to have my presence within you. And of course, once again, this is hard for them to comprehend For some of them, it seems not just radical, but counter to what they've been taught about the law. And so this is what the response was. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It was the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. 
The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And so if we fast forward through that conversation, it says this, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Christ doubles down on this. He gives them this teaching once again, and a bunch of people give up on Christ. All the people who are on the fringe, all the people who have questions, they walk away. And the ones who are left probably still don't get it and probably still don't understand. In fact, they wouldn't get it until later on in the story. And when they would understand it was when Jesus now once again repeated these words during Passover, during the celebration when they were celebrating the sacrifice of the lamb and the blood on the doorpost to protect them from death. Jesus shows himself as the Passover lamb and once again says, this is my body, and he gives him bread. This is broken for you, right? This is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he says, and he hands him the wine. He says, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and all people for the forgiveness of sins. So when he said these words, not only did he make sense of the Passover, that it was meant to point towards the ultimate Passover lamb, which was him, he also made sense of this conversation, this hard teaching back in John 6 that through the bread and the wine, even though we don't intellectually understand it, that God is actually using that time to give us something, right? He's giving us his presence, forgiveness, a connection to him, eternal life. There's a whole myriad of things mentioned, and that's what we're offered in that, where Christ is taking that bread and that wine, creating spiritual medicine for us to participate in and connect with him and have all the benefits that are offered. It's an amazing thing, and it matches up. It allows us to actually look at John 6 and say, oh, that's what he was talking about, just like the disciples would have remembered this conversation and now finally understood it. And uh, so that's what we get. That's what we're, we're offered. And I believe that's an exciting truth, an exciting thing to be thankful for as we understand it as Lutherans, is that there's actually something happening. God is using that moment uh, to feed our souls to feed our spirituality, to feed our relationship with him through tangible means. We can touch the bread, we can taste the bread, we can grab the wine, we can taste the wine, we can consume the bread and wine. And in that, we internalize God's benefits into our our physical being and into our soul. And so that's what we see in Scripture. And it allows us as Lutherans to take the whole of Scripture see how God functioned already back in Genesis, and see that God still functions that way today. And we don't understand it, but we take him as word, and we celebrate the fact that he is using these means to communicate his grace to us. I'll jump in, and I just want to continue on in a specific thought, Pastor Ben, that you brought up about how this work of Jesus giving his body and giving his blood in this passage in, in John 6 um, and then at, at the institution of the Last Supper in, in the Gospels um, connects then to the Old Testament. And in John 6, uh, the Jews reference that are speaking to him reference the, uh, the wilderness wandering from the book of Exodus, where Moses led the people of God to Sinai uh, to, to enter into the covenant relationship with God. Um, and they reference the manna from heaven, and they say, hey, you know, Moses gave us manna from heaven. What are you going to do? And that's how he goes into this whole thing about the, my, my body and my blood, and you eat of me. And so Jesus connects 
his his giving of himself uh, to the the giving of manna in in Exodus sixteen. Yeah, Exodus sixteen. Um, so the manna fell from heaven, or it fell from heaven. It appeared, um, and they called it the bread of heaven. Right? They called it the bread from heaven. And so that's why Jesus says, I am the, the true bread. I am the bread of life. I am the bread from heaven. He connects himself to the sustenance that the people of God received while they were in the wilderness heading toward the promised land. So he connects himself to this uh, part of the benefit that we receive is sustenance. It's... Um, it's strengthening, which is why uh, after we take communion here, uh, we always give the blessing, um, which says, may the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ strengthen you. Uh, so to us, it's, it's, kinda, it's a spiritual food as well as a spiritual medicine that it provides and gives us strength, just like the manna provided the Israelites strength while they were in the wilderness wandering. So then as we go through our lives, the the Eucharist communion is that strengthening. It's the bread from heaven, um, the spiritual food that, that Jesus um, offers us. He offers us his bread or his body and his blood through the bread and the wine. And then, the, then you mentioned the Passover, which is the more direct connection where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper during the Passover meal. And so he has um, connecting then uh, his sacrifice with the sacrifice of the lamb, which the the Passover meal um, is talked about in Exodus twelve, and then again in Deuteronomy sixteen, where it's the last plague that God is going to strike the Egyptians with, and the God's going to kill the firstborn of every person, um, of every person and every animal and every domesticated animal. And God tells the Israelites, if you kill a sheep and then put the blood on the doorposts, I'll I'll know, my angel will know to pass over uh, this house as it goes on. So it's a way to protect the, the, the people of Israel from death, protect the people of Israel from the plague that's, that's going to hurt, you know, harm the world and going to curse the world. Um, And so Jesus connects himself to that lamb. Uh, that he's instituting the Passover, and he says, this is my body, this is my blood, given for you for the forgiveness of sins. Um, Do this for the remembrance of me. He's connecting himself to that Passover lamb. So we actually see Jesus uh, using this as an opportunity to um, connect the the past witness of God uh, with him. So he's kind of saying, I'm the fulfillment of all these things, all these good blessings that uh, the people of God were given, I'm the fulfillment of them, of the protection during the Passover. I'm the fulfillment of that. I'm the ultimate protection uh, from that, from death, uh, the wilderness wanderings, the sustenance that they were given by the manna and the quail from heaven. He says, he says, I'm the ultimate sustenance um, as you go throughout your life. I'm the one who's, who's doing this for you. And then Jesus also, he, um, he also in verse... 55 and 56, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. And so that connects with later in John 15, um, when Jesus is teaching his disciples and he says, abide in me and I will abide in you. I am the true vine. If you connect with me, then you'll have life. And so he's also connecting this act of eating his body and blood with abiding. So he, I mean, it seems here that he's saying this is a vital part of being involved with me. 
this is a vital part in being one of my people is uh, is taking this sacrament and eating my blood and or eating my body and drinking my blood. That's how you abide in me is is doing that that work. So there's a lot in there that Jesus is pointing, a lot of good things, a lot of benefits that Jesus is offering. His presence, abide in me and I'll abide in you, he offering sustenance uh, by connecting it to the manna from Exodus 16, and also protection and, and forgiveness of sins, um, which is the uh, Passover meal. So he's saying there, there are lots of benefits that we've already uncovered just pretty short, in a short amount of time. Um, that we receive from that Jesus connects with His body and His blood. So we've danced around um, this topic of how often to take it. We've mentioned in past we've taken it less often, and that assumes now that we take it more often. So let's let's talk about that. Like, how often should we take it? It, it seems as if the more we take communion the better off we are. You know, as you understand these things, and if you're listening to this podcast today, and you might be from a different tradition, you might not have been completely swayed. Maybe you were, I have no idea. Uh, but really, as you look at communion, and if you feel it it offers benefits, then your natural posture would probably be to take it more often than not. If you view it as simply a remembrance, then taking it less often makes a little bit more sense. And and that just, in our humanity, those things are actually are logical depending on where you stand in those spheres. So for example, uh, when you get married, you have a, a wedding party, right? You have the wedding celebration. If you did that every week for the rest of your life, it would minimize it being special, right? So that's kind of the, the memory philosophy. We take it left less often, and therefore it makes it special. Um, however, as as Lutherans, if we're viewing it as a spiritual medicine, as God actually doing something, then taking it as often as possible has to be the logical conclusion. It has to be the logical conclusion because if it is what we say it is, if it is spiritual medicine, then we have to treat it like medicine. And I don't know about you, but I have uh, a medicine I have to take every day, because of a thyroid issue that I was born with. And I don't not take it because it'd be more special if I could feel great one day out of the week. Uh, I take it every morning. It's the first thing I do. I wake up, I take my medication. And, and the same thing as believers, if this is what this is, and this is how we're understanding it, then taking it on a regular basis makes a lot of sense. And for our Catholic brothers and sisters, this is exactly how you understand it, and you logically play it out in that regard. Every time you meet, there's the Eucharist, that's the Mass, that's the pinnacle moment of the service. I mean, it only makes sense. And uh, if it is spiritual medicine, you take it on a regular basis to get the benefits. Uh, you know, you don't take it occasionally because it's more special. That makes that makes no sense. I mean, that really is more of a, a memorial understanding and if you land in that sphere, yes, it does make sense to take it once a year or once a quarter or once a month. But as Lutherans, I mean, it, it seems to strongly imply that if we believe Christ's words, we take them at face value. I mean, he repeated them again to give clarity. He didn't back down. If this is what he is offering, then we should take them as often as we can. And uh, that's a strong belief of mine simply because it seems to be the only option at the end of the day. 
the only option is if we want to experience the benefits, if we really want to be pulled ahead by the work of the Holy Spirit and God's working in our lives, then we step into this opportunity as much as we can. Mm-hmm.